We'll turn your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 10. We are back in our Sunday morning series called No Ordinary Man as we walk through the Gospels as chronologically as we possibly can. I do want to start this men's fellowship. If you can go to the men's fellowship, this is tomorrow night, 6 p.m. I'm going to start over here. Uh, Brother Jeff, would you mind grabbing this? I guess we could start it with Brother Gary first. Okay, and we'll just go section to section. If it comes by you and you're not a man, just keep going. Keep on going. All right. But we'd love to have you tomorrow night, uh, men. And uh, boys, uh, you're welcome as well. We're in Luke chapter 10 this morning. If I could, I'm just thinking there's something I'm supposed to be saying right now. I can't remember what it is. Um, feel free to use next week as an evangelism tool to have somebody come with you. If you know somebody with a family or part of a family, bring them here for family day. We'll be uh, opening the Word of God with family-based teaching and preaching all day. And then, of course, we'll end the day with our picnic. And they're welcome to join us as well. There's no cost on that. And then every family will get a cup. I've been looking for a reason to give these out. This is a good one. So we're going to do that next week, one of our East Side tumblers. That'll be for next week. Okay. So Luke chapter 10, if you would, if you want to follow along, you can just open your bulletin up, and we have, actually, we have the outline right there, and you can fill in notes in between the points there. When it comes to a narrative in Scripture, meaning a story, okay, it's in story form. Um, you know the difference, but maybe you've never really talked about it. You know, many of the New Testament books are epistles, they're letters written to a church. The Gospels are narratives, they are stories, Okay, so they're written in story form, and the Gospels specifically tell the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. God in the flesh came down to this earth, and he lived here for 33 years. And what God wanted us to know about that is, is written right there in those, in those books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we kind of go back and forth as we're going through this series, No Ordinary Man. I'm glad you're joining with us this morning. The title for this morning is, Who is My Neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, I want you to take off your American interpretive hearing aids on this one. And if you need a new hearing aid, of course, you see Brother Lee Cooper. But uh, for this morning's purposes, just take off the American listening ears. And we're not talking about your next door neighbor specifically. Although your next door neighbor, he or she, is included in this phrase, my neighbor. We'll find out exactly who we're talking about there. And I think actually probably a little more appropriate title might be, what does it really mean to love your neighbor as yourself? That's what we'll look at this morning as we turn to Luke chapter 10. Let's read that through together um, with me, if you would, and um, then we'll also go through it expository. Uh, chapter 10, verse 25. Did I tell you verse 25? Turn to verse 25, if you would. It's a little bit of a passage here, so you're going to have to hang with me, please. Chapter 10, verse 25, and the Bible says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, 
A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. By chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, and likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him. Whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I'll repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me this morning? Father, We need you to speak to our hearts this morning. We need you to give us spiritual eyes and ears so that we can see truth. We can apply your truth to our lives the way you would have us to, Father. This morning I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would have freedom in this place. Lord, there may be someone in this auditorium, it's likely, someone that does not know you as Lord and Savior. Pray today would be the day they could get this settled. They might go forward and allow one of us after the service to show them from the scriptures how they can be saved. Lord, for your children who are here today to be challenged, to be confronted, to be strengthened, so that we can go back out into this world and shine for you. That we can go back out into this world as the salt that you would have us to be to pull this world back from some of its sinful ways, to preserve them like salt would, to to flavor your way, this creation that you have made here, Lord, that has seemingly been overrun by sin. Lord, this morning, might your people be challenged and emboldened to be who you saved us to be. Lord, give us strength. We can't do this on our own. We dare not do this on our own. In your name I ask, amen. So we're in Luke chapter 10. Uh, the context before, I know it's been a while since we've been in, going through this. Matter of fact, I think it was April since when we stopped. And if you remember, which you probably don't, I had to look it up too, don't worry. Um, the 70, not the 12 disciples, but the 70 disciples, there was another group that were following Jesus as well. It had gotten quite large. The 70 were sent out two by two into neighboring villages and towns where Jesus would be traveling soon. Okay, if you remember, he's on his final trek to Jerusalem when we look back on the history of this. He's in the final three months, chronologically, of his life here on this earth. And although that seems like a short time, we're, gonna, we're really only about two-thirds of the way in the gospel accounts, so there's still plenty to cover. Most, um, I feel like most of the gospel accounts have to do with a short amount of time in Jesus' life. And we'll see that um, as, as we get closer to this. But there's one passage in, just kind of brings us up to speed. The 70 disciples had come back, and remember, they were excited. Why were they excited? Because they'd been able to cast out demons. They'd been able to do healings. I mean, physical manifestations, right? Everybody gets excited about that. It's, uh, wow, can't believe it. You know, he had given them powers at this time in the church age to signify who he was. He was the Messiah. He wasn't just a, a man, a it wasn't just um, some kind of prophet or, or preacher or a teacher. He was the Son of God. He gave them power to signify that. 
Very similar to what he gave the apostles after he rose from the, the grave and ascended into heaven. He gave Holy Spirit power for that time period to signify this gospel message. It was brand new. He wanted people to know this was for real. This was of God. So he gave them that power, as I believe, as the word of God was being put together. And now, later on, here we are in the church age, and we have God's full word before us. Now he requires, like he always did, but in a different way, faith. He requires faith. And this faith comes in his word. But it's interesting, after the 70 got back, we see that Jesus turns aside in verse 23. So in chapter 10, verse 23, Jesus turns to his disciples as he's talking. And remember, telling the 70, here's what you really need to be excited about. Not that you were able to cast out devils and you're able to do healings and stuff. Here's what you need to be excited, that your names are written in heaven. This was, this was what he was pointing them to, not these physical things that I let you do for a while, but the fact that you're a child of God and you'll be with me for eternity. And it says in verse 23, and he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see, have not seen them. And to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. And then he continues on with our passage this morning. And I say to us, blessed are our eyes. What these disciples were able to see, you say, well, if I, man, if I could have lived when Jesus was there, I'd be so much better Christian. And actually, Jesus says, no, that's not the case. Remember, he tells the, the rich man as he's standing outside of, uh, standing in Abraham's bosom, looking into the fires of hell, as he's telling and begging that somebody would go and tell his brothers what's, uh, what's the answer there. Abraham says, no, if they won't believe, Moses, was it Moses and the prophets? I might be getting the quote wrong here. Then they're not going to believe someone even if they rose from the dead. It's always been faith. It will always be faith. There will be some element that you and I have to believe. There's going to be some element that you and I have to step, step outside of our own common sense thinking and believe that God is God. At this point, they had to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Here they are, right here, front and center with him. Who are you? Well, he had quite a few that believed exactly who he was, but there were quite a few that didn't. One of those was this lawyer that we're going to talk about this morning. You know, as we get into this passage, you're going to notice that it's a very familiar parable, right? I mean, most of us have heard this narrative quite a few times. Many times in a Sunday school lesson or maybe in a Bible storybook or something like this, most of the English world knows this story. They've actually coined a phrase from the hero of this story, a good Samaritan, right? I mean, you'll hear news stories where people that don't even, don't even believe in God will say, breaking news, a good Samaritan pulled somebody off the street and from a burning building or whatever. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a coined phrase in the world. It came right here from this story that Jesus Christ told. And kind of the world's meaning, the, the phrase that has been coined there, with, I think we would all agree is really just, it means someone who does a good deed for someone else in need. Right? And that would be true in a sense, but it's by no means complete. So this morning, I just urge you, if you've heard this story 25 million times growing up in church, do not tune this out. Maybe, number one, it's God's word, but maybe God would show you something new today. As amazing as you may think that would be, and as unlikely as that may be, in your mind. 
maybe you're like me and you hear the same story over and over again and, and actually your understanding over the years has gotten shallower of that story because you've heard it so many times and you really just stop meditating on it. You stop thinking about it. Maybe the Lord would show you something today. I believe he will. It's his eternal word. Jesus' main point, I found out as I studied this and was brought front and center with this, it's not to teach us how to be good neighbors to those who are around us. That's not really the point of this story. Although there's much to learn, right? There is, and you'll see that in here. He's actually using this story to evangelize somebody. Here's a, here's a great, whenever we're reading uh, the parables, which are illustrations by Jesus, so far, and do a study on it, find out if I'm wrong here, but so far, all the parables I've read and seen all are pointing to salvation. They're an illustration of salvation in some form or fashion. Because this is what God is interested in. He came here to save us from our sins. This is why he came. This was his main goal. From the time he was born, he was heading towards the cross for you and for me. All the parables are about that. Even, and even though when Jesus is done, this man that he's talking to, this lawyer, doesn't acknowledge the truth. We don't, we don't think he gets saved. I mean, we don't know one way or the other, but you'll see it's, it's silent. And Jesus presents it to him anyways. And we see it so clearly in this story, what Jesus is doing, if we'll take it in its context. So let's start working down through uh, chapter 10, verse 25. The first thing we see, and because this is a narrative, forgive me, these are really hard to outline, at least for me. So I'm going to give you the outline in story form, and we'll draw our applications in between the points, okay? So first, first part of this story we see is a test from an expert in the law. The Bible says that a man stands up in the crowd. Let's read verse 25. It says, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So he just got done talking to the 12, right? He just got done turning aside privately to his disciples and telling them, blessed are your eyes if you see these things. And then this lawyer stands up in the crowd and asks a question. And actually, the question is tremendous. I mean, what? there is no more important question than this. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Way to go, if the man had really wanted to know. And what a sad thing that you could ask the right questions and have the wrong heart and totally miss the truth, as this man does. And by the way, this man wasn't just any man. His, his title and what they share in the Gospels with us claims he was an expert on the Mosaic Law. He was an expert probably on the oral law that had been added to the Bible over the years by the rabbis as well. And this wasn't just a curious question. He was trying to prove a point. Do you see what it said? A certain lawyer stood up and tempted him. So he was not just coming up with some spiritual question, which all of us would love for somebody to do, right? Walk up to us and just ask us, hey, how do you, how do you get saved? I guess I've been waiting for you all my life. <laughs> this has happened so, so rare, right? This wasn't one of those questions. He was trying to catch Jesus in his word. By the way, history tells us that this was a very common practice in Hebrew culture. If you were educated, if you were one of the religious elite or one of the religious notoriety, you were looking for opportunities to elevate yourself. And what was a good way to elevate yourself? Well, if I can ask something of one of these other people that are kind of neck and neck with me or above me, if I can ask them something that they can't answer, that's going to make me look better. 
Or if I can stump the guy that's really respected, I mean, that just elevates me, right? Or if I can proclaim some new truth that nobody else has ever thought of before, I mean, that just puts me right up in there. So this was, this was a common thing. He was looking to be the expert, maybe. They definitely all were on some philosophy or doctrine. This was very desirable practice for them. Next thing we see after the, the test from the expert is the impossible answer from Jesus. Jesus, of course, omniscient God, the source of wisdom and truth, opens his mouth and out proceeds wisdom. It's everything he said was like that. It's, it just draws our worship and our praise, does it not? In verse number 26, he said unto him, what is written in the law? This is Jesus talking to the lawyer. What is written in the law? How readest thou? And the answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he, Jesus, said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. Whoa, what? A perfect opportunity to evangelize the guy? And he just tells him he can earn his way to heaven? Is that what's going on here? Of course, we know not. Seems like that at the beginning, though, doesn't it? Jesus, because he knows the heart of this person, knows the man, knows exactly what he needs to ask him to get the right response. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus, as we'll see even more in the parable he's getting ready to tell, Jesus is trying to get this man lost. Because you cannot get saved until you know you're lost. Because you don't need to be saved. You don't really need to be delivered from your sins if you're perfectly okay with having them in your life. You don't need to follow Jesus if you're perfectly okay with not following Jesus. You have to know you need him. You have to be given that sight by the Lord as he draws us and shows us our sin and challenges us. And he does that in all, all so many different ways. For me, it was taking my entire self-confidence out of my life in a two-week period, three major car accidents, two of them involving my family. I, was, I felt helpless. And for one of the few times, maybe, I don't know if it was the first time at that point in my life, but one of the few times in my life, my self-confidence was gone. All I could do was look to him. That was God's goodness, by the way, to do that for me. Or else I know in my blindness I would have just carried on as usual. But God did that for me. I believe that's what God is trying to do for this man. He gives him an impossible answer. You want, eternal, you want eternal life? Here you go. What's written in the law? You're a lawyer. You're an expert. So you tell me, what does the Bible say in the law? Okay, that's his Bible at that time. Didn't have the Bible like we're talking about right here. But what is written in the law? How do you get eternal life? He's, then he quotes, what, he, what does he quote? He quotes the Shema, right? He quotes the Shema from, I think it's Deuteronomy 6, and then a little bit of Leviticus 19. So he puts the Shema, which is love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he puts a little bit of Leviticus 19 in there and love thy neighbor as thyself. Puts them together. Oh, well, yeah, good. I mean, I know the answer to this. So he gives, gives the answer, and we would look at that and say, great answer, but wrong application. Wrong application. The ultimate goal of the law was not, uh, was not to condemn us, but to give us a standard. God tells us in Galatians, we'll look at that actually next. God tells us in Galatians that the, uh, the purpose in the law was to point us to Jesus, 
The purpose in the law was to point us to the soon coming lamb that would sacrifice himself for the sins of mankind. Paul later on in the New Testament talks to the church here in the town of Galatia, the city of Galatia. And he talks to them about the law. He says, wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptized means immersed there, okay? He says the law was our schoolmaster. He's talking, using a, a cultural term there. Schoolmaster was uh, something that the wealthier people in Galatia would use to tutor their children, to bring. They didn't send them maybe to the school or the public place. They would have home tutors, and that schoolmaster would be sort of like a, a Mary Poppins or a Mr. Poppins, I don't know, that would kind of bring up the child. And he says the law was like that for you. The law was your teacher. The law was the one that was bringing you to Christ. It was showing you that you needed a Savior. He says in verse 25, but after that, faith has come. We're no longer under schoolmaster. You don't need that any longer. You don't need that. You cannot fulfill that. You cannot obey that. And here's exactly what Jesus was showing this man as he gives him an answer. This is how I get eternal life by loving the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving my neighbor as myself. This is what I do. And Jesus is getting ready to show him, you can't do that. That sounds good, but you can't do that. The question, what can I do to gain eternal life, is really what this whole morning is about. Okay, don't forget that. What can I do to gain eternal? It's the age-old question. We feel, somehow, all of us feel at some point in life that we can earn this. We must earn this. There must be a way that we can do something to be worthy of this. And we can't. It's the basis of all false religion. It's the starting point of all false religion. Based on our need to feel like we did something to gain uh, God's grace, to be worthy of God's grace. But here's the problem with that. It takes the glory away from God and it puts it on us. Jesus answers. He says to this lawyer, that's right, if you can do that, you will gain eternal life, if you can do that. You know, I, thought, I was thinking about this. Maybe the lawyer at this point is kind of going through his mind. Okay, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, so check. Uh, love thy neighbor as thy... Mm, that's a tough one. Maybe uh, I'm thinking of a couple loop. Okay, but if I did it this way and that, when he, he asked Jesus another question, he goes on. And he listen to this. He, he has a comeback statement. Point number three here. There's another test that he puts before Jesus. And I kind of, it looks to me like he's looking for a loophole. Oh, love thy neighbor as thyself. I'm not 100% sure what he's saying there. But, uh, and I know what I've been taught. And he's, he's starting to get around, trying to, trying to weasel his way out of this one. Verse 29, but he, this is the lawyer, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So you notice that phrase, willing to justify himself. He's feeling some conviction from something here, and he wants to get out of it. He's, he's, not, he's not responding to the conviction with repentance. Lord, I, you're right, I can't do that. I can't. What do you want me to do? What can I do? And I believe he would have got a different answer from the Lord. 
But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? You can just imagine just the smug look on his face. Just a man full of pride that is, and yes, I'm reading into it, okay? <laughs> a man full of pride that is trying to justify himself, trying somehow to make himself look better, to get out of maybe the conviction that he's going on, to avoid the real issue that he cannot obey the law. He can't. And through his own answer from the law, he seems to be, uh, honestly, convicting himself. The question is that he asked to Jesus now is, who is my neighbor? Well, why would he ask something like that? I think maybe if we look in Matthew chapter 5 on the screen behind me, there was teaching that was happening in their culture. And we, Matthew gives us a little bit of a window into that. He says, as this is in the Beatitudes, okay, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying to the crowd, ye have heard that it hath been said. Okay, so what's Jesus referring to? This is being taught in your culture. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Well, they added something in there. Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. Verse 44, But I, Jesus, say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. See, the rabbis had been teaching things on top of the Word of God. We, we find this and we see glimpses throughout the New Testament. Rabbis had been perverting God's Word, mostly, I believe, it seems like, because they were adding to it. They weren't taking God's Word and changing it necessarily, they were just adding to it. They had taught that there were certain people, certain people that it was okay, not just okay, it was righteous if you hated them. That's what it had become in their culture. Your enemies... You've heard of some of these, publicans, prostitutes, Gentiles, and in our story today, Samaritans. Samaritans. It was not only okay to hate these people in their culture, it was righteous if you did. Samaritans were, for our story today, um, they were half Jewish people. They, we've talked about this before, but it's been a while. They were half-Jewish people who had intermarried with an invading nation when the northern and southern kingdom were separated. Remember that back when the, the kings, the days of the kings? And they had intermarried with, an, with a, an, another nation that came in there. I can't remember the name of the nation. You can study that out. And they had also, when they came back, they had disrupted the worship at the Jewish temple. And there was a, there was a laundry list of things that the Israelites, the Hebrews, were mad at them about, were angry and they, over time. That feud had just been fueled and compounded. They were hated. In fact, it was said in, the, in that culture, if you really wanted to put someone down, you called them a Samaritan. That was a, a great put down. Very offensive. And here we go into the story that we all know and love. But please do not forget, this story is a story, number one. But number two, it's an answer from Jesus. This story was not meant to be a mantra for really anything other than an illustration to confront this man on his lost condition. So keep that context in mind. And keep in mind also when we're interpreting parables. This is something that was very helpful to me. I, I probably didn't realize this, honestly, until about six or seven years ago. 
when you're interpreting parables, you cannot apply everything that's written in the parable to your life or really anybody's life. You can only apply the truth that Jesus is illustrating. So let me, let me say that again. When you read a parable, you cannot, if you're going to be a good interpreter of Scripture, you cannot take that parable and look at suppositions on what all of these little things may mean. And the way he answered, and did he go left, did he go right, and how, what does that mean, and that, and this, these are all fictional stories. And Jesus, using a fictional story, much like I would an illustration, but his are much better, much like I would an illustration, that illustration is to prove a point. When Jesus speaks, when Jesus teaches truth, he uses an illustration to portray that truth. We don't have any reason to believe that everything within that parable is something that you can apply to your life. Nor that it means. That's sometimes why you'll find parables, like if you're going through the parables, kingdom parables in Matthew 13, sometimes they almost seem like they oppose. Why? Because you're applying all of the pictures. And you're saying, well, if it meant something here, then how come it doesn't mean that here? Well, because the truth was different. He was purveying a different truth. So you have to keep that in mind as we're looking at the Good Samaritan. Although there are things we can do in here and we will learn um, some things about how to treat other people, that's not the primary task in this parable. Okay? And I want you, I'm just going to give you some advice here. I think it is not a faithful interpretation of this parable to take some of the people in the parable and now to make stereotypes out of this people, or even say that Jesus thinks this about that person, or this, we have a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Even now saying what Jesus thinks about these type of people and, and basing doctrines off of that. The point is, Jesus is explaining to this man, who is your neighbor? Well, I tell you, for you personally, it's someone that you can't love as yourself, and you're not loving him as yourself. He is trying to show this man you're not obeying the law. And if you can't obey the law... You need a savior. You need me. He never gets to that point, but we can see that's where he's going. The truth in this parable is this. It's an answer to the lawyer's provocative question. And it's twofold answers we're going to see. Number one is, who is my neighbor? This is what he's getting at. Okay, I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. Well, who is that? Because in his mind, there was some that you loved and there's some that you didn't. So who exactly are you talking about here? Because, uh, I mean, I guess it depends who it is, right? And maybe that's what he's thinking. And then at the end of the parable, Jesus says what? Go thou and do likewise, or go and do thou likewise. So we have another lesson that Jesus puts in here. The example I just gave you of the, of the Samaritan, go and do thou likewise. So we have two lessons here. Number one, who is my neighbor? Number two... How do I love my neighbor as myself? Those are the two lessons here. Okay? So keep that in mind and be careful. We don't make Jesus say something here that he's not saying. The truth here um, is very evident if we'll just kind of walk through it together. So let's do that. Verse number 30. Okay? Here's the beginning of the parable. And Jesus answering said, remember, he's answering a question. What, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then who is my neighbor? says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, his clothing, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. So here's our story as we walk down through it together. There is a road. It's a real road. 
There's a road, it's about 17, 18 miles. I got some differing. I've never been there, so I'm just reading what other people say about it. There's a road from Jerusalem to Jericho, about 18 miles long. Jerusalem is 2,700 feet above sea level. Jericho is 850 feet below sea level. So it's a pretty steep road. You have 18 miles, but it's a, it's a well, you can see a little bit, there's the two red dots there, if you looked at it sideways in cartoon land. Okay, so there you go. Between red dots, that's 18 miles. There's a road, the parable says. So he starts with a real road. I think this is very interesting. Why does he do this? Because everybody in the room listening to him or everybody in the landscape they're listening would know exactly the road that he's talking about. And this really adds a lot to the illustration. Okay? Listen, here's a little bit. This, it, the road, by the way, the road's still around. Modern-day hikers hike it. It's a tourist attraction. This is part of it, just a small, small segment. It goes through the Judean wilderness. If you're here last week, you saw the pictures of David. Um, you know, I thirst after God in, in a dry and thirsty land, the Judean wilderness. This goes smack dab to the middle of the Judean wilderness, just like we saw last week. 17 miles through this. this. This hike, this trail was known for being dangerous. It was known for being long. The last trek, as you go down the hill in getting near to Jericho, which is under sea level, it's a very deep valley. As you go into that last section, it's actually called the Pass of Adumim. We read about it in Joshua 18. You can write that down and study it. In the Hebrew tongue, it was called the Pass of Blood. Why? Because it was so dangerous. So many people had been killed there. And keep in mind, Jesus is illustrating something here, and his people automatically, when he tells about this road from Jer Jerusalem to Jericho, they think of this. He mentions this road in his story. Let's go on in verse 31. Continue. And by chance, there came down a certain priest that way. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. So we get the picture here. In, in our story, there happens to be three men traveling down this road, but one man had already traveled down the road. This one man had been accosted by thieves, by bandits, and this, they weren't pickpockets, okay? They, they took this man, they beat him half to death, they laid him on the side of the road, and he was still there. This man was in bad condition, and he was nearly naked. They took everything from him, took his possessions, took his clothing, and they left him there for dead. And this, according to Hebrew history and culture, was a common thing that happened there. Then Jesus introduces into the story, this fictional story, three men coming by. Three possible rescuers. The first man was a priest. Okay, there were, there were men. These were men who were tasked in Hebrew culture with bringing the sacrifices into the temple for burning them to do all of the priestly orders. They were very well trained in the ways of God. They, uh, the high priest was the only one that could actually go into the Holy of Holies. Remember, I mean, these were respected, godly men in Hebrew culture. This man comes down the road. He sees the man laying there half dead. And the Bible says he, he passed by on the other side. Then Jesus introduces a second man. This man is a Levite. No, you might think he's a priest. They weren't the same as, as a priest. They were from a tribe. They were sons of Jacob from the tribe of Levi, but they were almost like the assistant pastors. They were the ones that took care of the house of God. They, they had a big hand in the services, the reading of the scripture, etc., etc. They were tasked with all those duties needed to care for the temple. 
So they were, they were religious men, definitely. This Levi, this religious man, I mean, hopefully he would obey God, right, and love his neighbor as himself in the story here, but he doesn't. To his credit, at least he stops, comes over, and looks at the man. That part's to his credit. The other part's not to his credit. Now you've actually, to me, given yourself more accountability. You can't say any kind of argument like, I didn't see him, right? Oh, oh I didn't notice. There was a guy. I, I didn't, didn't know. I was looking over at the wall. There was really good scenery over here, you know, like the priest, maybe. This guy went over and looked at him and then intentionally walked away and left him. By the way, these are both religious men, both respected religious men of the day, they both passed by on the other side. Interesting, the Greek, the tenses in the Greek word here, passing by on the other side, really lends itself to saying they went the opposite direction. I mean, they went as far away from, from this guy as they possibly could. The opposite side of the road. Then Jesus, as a master storyteller, Jesus introduces a shocking character to this Lord. The hated Samaritan. Oh, we think in our day, oh, the good Samaritan. I mean, it's a really positive. Not so with them. Not so with them. I don't know if you saw on the Facebook page um, as I was studying this, I came across a modern retelling of this in New York City. And it's interesting to note the modern retelling of this as the Samaritan actually uses an Arab, an, an, a Middle Eastern man. And it's just a few years in New York City after the 9-11 uh, bombings, crashes, you know, the terrorist plot, a few years, and they really drew that home, that here's two religious people that walk by and see this guy that was just mugged. They don't do anything. They had all their ways of explaining it around and, and kind of conveniently ignoring it. But this guy that kept getting looks from everybody, you know, a cab driver, he, uh, he was the one that helped him. He was the one that went out of his way, took him to the hospital, etc. Go on our Facebook page, you can take a look at it later. It's about 12 minutes. This priest and this Levite, they see the need. They've read the scriptures. They've memorized the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. And they keep on going. How did they do that? Because there were certain people in their culture it was okay to hate. Matter of fact, even righteous. I can see them even reasoning that out in their mind that this was one of those people. You know, it's interesting, uh, you, you know, all sorts of stuff on this, on Google. They actually did a, um, a survey in one of the major cities and they call it the bystander effect. They actually had an actor that would lay on the ground in a major thoroughfare in the city. And it started, they did several different actors. They started with a woman, she's like laying on the steps, I mean, looks like out cold, people are like walking right by her, looked like she'd hit her head or something, for about 20 minutes. And she was dressed like a homeless person for about 20 minutes before somebody stopped to see if she was okay. They had a guy, same type outfit, do a very similar thing, it took about 17 minutes. And they had somebody stop, and they had another person that was like interested, but they weren't brave enough to do anything until the first person, and then they went over and okay, now somebody else is, is willing to do it. They call it the bystander effect. They said you're much more, people are much more likely to help somebody in need if they're by themselves. If you're actually part of a crowd, you're okay with just kind of melting in with the crowd and not meeting the need. That's why it's so prevalent, they say, in larger cities. 
Interestingly enough, they put a man in a very expensive suit in exactly the same position. It took about one minute. And he had several people around him. Maybe that's the way it was with these guys. I mean, he's, he's half dead. He's naked. I don't want to get involved. I think maybe I've felt that way before. Both religious men. Verse 33. But. We love it when Jesus puts a but in there. <laughs> but a certain Samaritan. I can just imagine that lawyer right now. Just in his collar. A who? A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. I mean, Jesus uses this Samaritan illustration to point out that this lawyer was not actually keeping the whole law. This lawyer, whatever he thought in his mind, was not actually doing what it would take to inherit eternal life pointing him towards his need for a savior. This lawyer was a sinner in need of Jesus. He speaks right to the heart of this man's sin. And then he shows this man, and all who would be reading it 2,000 years later, shows us all how we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And this, this was mind-blowing to me. You say, I've heard it before. Just listen. Ask God to show you something this morning. Verse 34. He shows us the actions of this Samaritan. The Samaritan went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. Here's what the Samaritan did. He, we saw first he, he bound up his wounds with oil and wine. The Levite, the respected religious men of the day, they kept on going. This man stops, the hated one, the one who actually wasn't even welcome on this road. He binds up this man's wounds. He stops, and you can just feel the care. He's now bandaging up this guy who was so wounded he couldn't even move off the road there. He's binding up his wounds with oil and wine. This was, these were common liquids that a traveler, if he was well prepared, would carry with him. The, the, the wine was like an antiseptic, okay? The oil was uh, like probably like olive oil or something like that, very soothing, especially in drier, arid climates. So he gives him some medicine to, to fix maybe and, and to, to stem off infection, and then he gives him something to make him feel a little bit better. This is before ibuprofen, I guess, Brother Clark. You know, didn't have that. So binding up his wounds with oil and wine, and then he gives him a ride in his own vehicle. He gets off his donkey, and he puts the guy in his donkey somehow, and he walks while the guy rides. And then he brings him to some sort of a roadside hotel. Culture says that they would have these. They actually didn't cost anything. Um, but if you needed any kind of entertainment, any kind of food or anything, the shelter was free, but the sustenance cost. He brings him to this roadside hotel, and the Bible says he stayed with him all night. Well, how do you know that? Well, because it says, and on the morrow. He's there with this guy all night long. And the next day, he talks to the guy that's providing the food and the water and everything else for the travelers that would stay there, gives him two days' wages, two denarii, two days' wages, 
with the promise that if it costs more than that, on his way back, he'll pay it. Remember what Jesus is answering here. Number one, who is our neighbor? And he points out somebody that was hated by that culture. Somebody that was very unwelcome in that culture. Somebody that would draw the eyes if that person walked through a public Jewish place. Somebody that would not be welcome in a Jewish synagogue or temple area. Somebody that there was direct animosity simply because there is certain nationality. He uses that person. And he says, who is your neighbor? Well, let me just show you who your neighbor is. Your neighbor is anybody. Anybody you come across. Anybody you cross paths with. No matter their financial status, no matter their race, no matter your back, their background, no matter their appearance, they are now, if you've come in contact with them, your neighbor. I mean, we can do uh, our best to be like the priest and just stay as far away as possible, and I'm sure we've all done that. I know I have. Just because of the hole, it looks like I'm getting ready to step into with this person. Who is our neighbor? Well, he's telling him. His point is, you haven't loved your neighbor. You need to be saved. But the interpretation goes for us as well. Who is our neighbor? Because the same command is given to us. Second thing he answers here is, how are we to love them? At the end of the parable, he says, go, thou, go and do thou likewise. This is how you are to love them as yourself. And I don't know how somehow I miss this. I've always looked at this parable as a good, good something to follow and to pattern after. Yeah, you know, he poured in oil and wine. I mean, he did really good things. He, he, he gave him a ride on his own vehicle. I mean, he brings him to this roadside hotel. He pays for his lodging. I mean, these are all good things, right? I could, no, Jesus is not saying this is what you need to do for every person you meet. That's not what he's saying here. We cannot take the parable and make a doctrine out of it. What he's saying is this is how you love somebody like you love yourself. When I saw that, this is how I would want to be treated. This is how, if I was planning the trip, this is what I would do. Jesus said, I want you to love your neighbor like you would love yourself. I want you to take care of those people you come across like you would take care of yourself. And I don't know how I missed this all these years. God help me this weekend. This is how we are to love them. And question number five, here's a question and answer time now, hosted by Jesus at the end, verse 36. Which now of these three, as he's talking to the lawyer, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, he that showed mercy on him. It was pretty obvious. Then said Jesus unto him, go and do thou likewise. I believe with all my heart if that man would have said, I can't. How do I do this? But we don't see that. Here's what we see. The awkward silence. In verse 38, what do we read? Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village. We read nothing whatsoever. Just like the rich young ruler that Jesus said, oh, you've You've done all the commandments from your birth. Well, here's one thing you need. You need to give away all your money, sell everything you have, and give it to the poor. 
Again, was he telling everybody to go sell everything they have and give it to the poor? No. But he knew exactly what this man was unwilling to do. Just like this lawyer. Oh, check. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which obviously wasn't true either. Oh, who's your neighbor? I'll tell you who your neighbor is. It's the one that you're unwilling to love as yourself. And he lets the law and he lets the word of God point to our sin. And it's supposed to drive us to him. It's supposed to drive us to him. There's such rich truth. Who is our neighbor? Well, we can go down and do that, go and do that likewise. We can take the, some of the principles here. It's anybody we come across, come across, and how do we love them like we love them, like we love ourselves? Well, it's going to be a little different for each of us because each of us provides for ourselves a little bit different, right? What I do for myself is going to be a little different than what you do for yourself. That's why it's not specific. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you come Wednesday night, we'll discuss that specific passage there as well. God gave it to us for our admonition. Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me this morning? Every head bowed and every eye closed as we ask the Lord to have his way in our lives. Lord, I don't know the condition of hearts here this morning, but you do. Father, I know you've already spoken, Lord. I pray that our responses to you would be honoring to you. Or I pray this morning if there's somebody in this room that's not sure that they've, they've uh, bowed their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, they've not come to you for salvation from their sins, accepting you as their Lord and Savior, their only way to heaven, their only way to be forgiven, Lord, as you're in our story today, Father, in our account today, Lord, you were on your way to the cross. It would be just a few months before you laid down your sinless, divine life for the sins of all mankind. We thank you for that. But there may be someone in this room that doesn't know you as Savior. I pray they would have the courage, they would understand the gravity of that situation. They would not react like this lawyer just trying to justify themselves, trying to figure out all the reasons they don't need to be saved today. They would come humbly, allow us to show them from the scriptures how they can be saved. You've given us clear instruction. We're grateful. Father, maybe with your children this morning, you've spoken to our hearts. Lord, it's... Lord, I speak from experience, there's inner turmoil that we encounter, Father, when in such a broken and needy world that we live in, what do we do when we see someone in need? How do we care for them? How far are we supposed to take this, Lord? Lord, might you give wisdom today and we would understand how to love others the way we want to be loved, the way we do love ourselves. Might we open the floodgates of your generosity that you might pour through us your love.